0: This episode is sponsored by Angular Dev Summit, coming September 11th through the 18th, 2017. Hi it's Chuck from devchat.tv, I reached out to some of my friends in the Angular community to put on a completely free, no travel conference for Ruby developers. We have speakers like Rob Wermald, Jeff Welpley, and others coming to speak about all kinds of topics in Angular. So if you're trying to learn Angular, or you're trying to level up Angular, come check it out. The talks are happening throughout the day each day, and we'll have a chat available during each session. Attending the talks is free, but you need to register. Go to AngularDevSummit.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another MyJS story. This week, we're talking to Faraz Abukadija. I think I said that close to right.
1: Yeah, that was basically right.
0: Now, you were on episode 155. We talked about WebTorrent. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, what, two years ago. It was quite a while ago.
1: Yeah, tell me about it. I've been working on WebTorrent for a really long time. I was actually doing the math the other day, and it's like almost uh, uh, 10% of my life. Actually, more than 10% of my life at this point, because it's been almost three years.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a long time to be working on a single project.
0: No kidding. Well, we're going to dig into your story and kind of give people an idea of who you are and kind of how you got into this whole coding thing. To start out, why don't we just start there? How did you get into programming?
1: Yeah, I, I think... It's actually hard for me to remember exactly when I got interested in programming specifically, but I've uh, pretty much always been interested in computers and technology far back as I can remember. Um, My mom told me a story about how when I was like a toddler, I was uh, always watching people when they were using technology, like whether it was the television or the microwave or the VCR. Uh, And she said I like tried to imitate what I saw and actually put blocks into the VCR to pretend they were tapes and things like that. So, you know, that every time they wanted to watch something on the the TV, they would always have to pull a bunch of little blocks out of the VCR to actually put a tape in. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Yeah, um, but I think when I first started getting seriously interested was in middle school when I learned about HTML and wanted to make a personal site. Um, It wasn't anything interesting. It was actually terrible, but you know, that was when I first learned that you could do that, that you could actually, you know, create like websites. They weren't just things that you visited. They were actually things you could poke around with and play with. Yeah. That was a big revelation. And then in high school is actually, then I think when I got more into actually, I don't even know if it's, I wouldn't even call it programming. It was, there was, um, there was this really cool, uh, class actually offered by my high school it was uh you could take it and it would um it was it was it was basically like a tech team so they called it so we went we went around and and fixed teachers computers we would would like you know if there was a virus on them they actually had us uh figure out how to fix the computer up because they were massively understaffed so they just like had a team of about four of us uh go around and just try to try to keep the computers in the school working. And so, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, I'm actually surprised at how much freedom they gave us. I mean, it was like they just would say, yeah, something's wrong, go and fix it. And if they would send one of us out, and if we couldn't figure it out, then they'd send another one of us out. And then eventually they would, they would actually have the one uh, IT person who was responsible for, like, the entire district uh, go and look at it if we couldn't fix it.
0: <laughs> that's that's um, interesting. I don't know if I would have trusted some of my computer gifted friends
1: with teachers'
0: computers back in high school.
1: Yeah, and there was always the weirdest issues. Some of the computers had, they had like administrator privileges turned on for like the student accounts as well, because the, some of the software that was required for cer- certain classes needed it. So the drafting class uh, that, you know, people were using AutoCAD. And mm-hmm. so, those computers had, like, always had viruses on them because people would install, like, first-person shooters and play, like, during class time and, the, and download random games from the Internet. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was good times, for sure. That sounds um, about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other thing that was funny about it was that they actually had a school-wide filtering system so that students couldn't access certain sites, and one of the categories they blocked was, uh, like, download sites. But in order to actually remove malware from the computers, we actually needed to download software from like download.com, I think is what we used. And so actually, in order to even do, the, do our jobs, we had to figure out how to use web proxies to get around the filters. So, oh, yeah, that was sort of an, uh, uh, I guess, a, one way that I learned about, you know, sort of behind the scenes of how stuff actually works and. I uh, ended up figuring out how to set up one of those on my own server um, so that I was the cool kid in school and I could tell everybody, oh, you want to play games? You know, go to my uh, my proxy site. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I made the password something like uh, t- to get into it, you had to type like Feroz is awesome or something.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: Yeah, it was great. Oh, man. Anyway, um, <laughs> and then let's see. I mean, that's probably, yeah, I think that's probably that. You know, oh yeah, and then I guess I guess the real so the real programming because this is sort of computers. The real sort of real programming. Um, of my first experience was PHP. In uh, in I think it was like maybe my my junior year uh, of high school. Around then, um, I bought a book at Barnes and Noble about PHP and my MySQL, and uh, was playing around with that. And uh, I wanted to build a site to host my favorite uh flash animations. Remember those uh-huh. for YouTube? <laughs> yeah. So that was uh that was like my project was like let's figure out how to build a, a database driven website where people can submit their um their flash animations and and uh and soundboards and prank phone calls and you know all that kind of like you know internet humor stuff. Uh and uh and um the site was called Free the Flash. Mm-hmm Yeah, that was my real first uh, website that I built. Oh, wow. It's actually still online, uh, but I'm kind of embarrassed about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's full of uh, really childish humor and silly things, (laughs) but it's still up.
0: Nice. So uh, how do you get from there to JavaScript?
1: I'm trying to think, like, the first... See, I was never really good at JavaScript. I think JavaScript is one of those languages that you don't actually really bother to sit down and learn. At least it used to be that way. People uh-huh. would just sort of be like, oh, yeah, I can program. Oh, I can figure out JavaScript. And there weren't, I mean, there weren't that many really good resources. At least I didn't know of any. So it's sort of something I've always just muddled, just sort of muddled through yep. and copy-pasted code and stuff like that. So I didn't really know know JavaScript uh, for for quite a bit of my early programming career, and it was only when um, when I started, so I started a company when I was in college, or actually right after I graduated from college, when I basically like sort of started taking JavaScript really seriously because I was learning Node.js, and that's sort of when I realized, wow, okay, this is a real programming language, and uh, you can build real things with it, and then, my, obviously, my... JavaScript skills were transferable to the front end uh, as well. Um, the startup was called Pure CDN, and we were trying to make a content delivery network that would work in the browser uh, mm-hmm. using using WebRTC. So I think I, t- I might have talked about that a little bit in the uh, other po- podcast that we did.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think we yeah. did go into that some.
1: Yeah, basically the, the idea was you would add a script tag to your website, and then we would. Uh, try to find other people on your site who are, you know, visiting your site at the same time who uh, already have the content that you want. And uh-huh. then you fetch it from them over a peer-to-peer connection to save, the, uh, to, to save on your hosting bill, basically, to, to reduce your, your CDN bill. Um, but, yeah, so that was, like, a pretty big Node application, and there was also a pretty intense front-end component, and so that's when I started learning about, like, NPM and, and uh, the Node way, you know, how, how, you, how you build things with you know, service, microservices and, and uh, uh, you know, how do you de- deploy a, a JavaScript application and, you know, uh, you know this, this crazy ecosystem of NPM and all this, all this kind of stuff. Is that, that was when I first got exposed to it, so that was in 2013.
0: Nice. Yeah, so you know we kind of talked a little bit, I guess, about the origin of of WebTorrent. Is that still mostly what you're working on in JavaScript?
1: um i've I've been trying to transition WebTorrent to more of a distributed uh, contribution model, so that I mean it's always been it's always been something that you know uh, I, i've I've given out the commit rights to freely. If someone makes a really good contribution, I'll just add them to the GitHub for it. but um, that's always been kind of informal, and the project is split across. Uh, dozens of repositories and NPM packages. So, it's it's sort of been kind of inconsistent. Uh, you know, I might add somebody to one repo, but not to another. And it's, So, anyway, I, I recently made it into an organization uh, on GitHub, and I'm hoping to make it something that's not just completely dependent upon me um, in order for it to continue existing. Uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, I'm going to be involved with it uh, for the foreseeable future. I mean, I think WebTorrent is still really fun to work on, but I'm also trying to, you know, do new projects as well besides uh, besides just that. Uh, so there's a team of people who are all contributing to WebTorrent who all have commit rights, and um, you know, I want to I want the project to be in a healthy state. But the good news is, I think WebTorrent is sort of mostly done in a in some sense. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it works right, it it works well. Um, there's obviously bugs and things that could always be better, uh, like with any software, but. Uh, you know, if you use WebTorrent, uh, you know, you'll you know that it works. And if you especially if you use the desktop application to to torrent things, um, you know, it's really polished and works pretty nicely. Um, so I feel good about the state of it.
0: Nice. Are there other contributions you've made to the JavaScript community that you are proud of and want to talk about?
1: Yeah, I would say uh probably the one that I'm most known for is standard.js, um, or sometimes it's called JavaScript standard style, which uh yeah that name always gets people's blood flowing and uh gets them riled up uh, <laughs> but standard j s is uh basically a um, attempt to um, codify some common sense JavaScript style rules into a simple package that you can install so if you want to enforce uh, a same set of uh code style requirements on your code base, you can just npm install standard and then. Uh, in your your test uh, field, you know in package JSON, just you can just add standard. Uh, and so you'd run one command standard and it'll just tell you whether your code is standard or not. And if it's not, it will tell you exactly you know what errors there are uh, on which lines uh, in your project. and these are errors you know of all kinds, like things for, you know about uh, consistent styling, so things like you know uh, you know spacing things correctly and things like that are that are sort of pr- mostly preference preferences that people have, but um, there's also things that are um, that catches that are errors or potential errors in your code. So things like uh, forgetting to handle an error uh, in a node style callback uh, or uh, something that's almost certainly a programmer error like missing, um, you know, uh, using a variable before it's defined and things like that. Um, So rather than having to spend uh, a long time debating a bunch of ESLint rules with your team and deciding exactly which of hundreds of rules you want to enforce and what exactly to configure them to, you can start with standard as sort of a sane starting point. Um, So it's been pretty popular about, I think around 800,000 people download it every month um, on NPM. So uh, I think currently like the second most popular style guide after the Airbnb style guide. So, um, yeah, it's been fun to work on that because just sort of <laughs> the community' is really good and and uh, it's always good fun to to uh, <laughs> sort of troll people a little bit with the name. yep, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, so I don't know if you know the story of of how how it got started at the very beginning of standard. I should probably share that. I
0: think yeah, go of... ahead,
1: yeah, basically, so uh, I was working on you know, like on WebTorrent, and uh, I kept giving this, you know, repeated. Feedback on on pull requests from people. Um, I kept getting pull requests that were really good that uh, you know contained features or bug fixes that I wanted to merge. But uh, the problem was that there would always be minor um, you know style issues. Somebody would you know n- not match the existing style of the file that they were editing. They would uh, you know it just you know inconsistencies that you know don't really didn't really matter to functional to the functionality of the application, but um, or the module but that you know if you let these kinds of small things uh you know accumulate in your code base over time you end up with a situation where where it's it's hard to scan files quickly because you know every time a function is declared it looks slightly differently you know sometimes it's assigned to a variable and sometimes it's a function declaration or sometimes it's you know uh that the indentation is wrong and completely off and it's just you know these small things like slow you down in in a, in um tiny ways but over time you know if you let that sloppiness into your code base, it's very uh, easy for it to, to spiral out of control. So it's best to keep it always in my experience is best to just keep things nice. Uh, and, 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 you know, don't even let the first, you know, bad code into the code base in the first place, it's sort of like the uh, broken windows, uh, theory, uh, where, you know, if you, there's a neighborhood with a broken window, people, you know, start to think that things aren't maintained and, you know, things aren't, uh, uh, Taken care of, and, and then things start to degrade quickly. Quickly after that, so uh, what I ended up having to do was I, I had this tough, tough decision. I can either merge the pull request and then go in myself and fix the issue, or I could uh, give them feedback and, and leave a comment and say, you know, this is great. I'm gonna I, w- I want to merge this, but um, please, you know, fix these uh, two or three issues and 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 uh, and update your pull request. And when you do that around half the time people just disappear and, you know, they'd never actually make the change. And so then you have this like abandoned pull request that you have to remember to go back and, and basically just uh, merge yourself. Uh, or sometimes people want, want to actually fix it up, but they don't know how to update a pull request. Um, it's It's something that, you know, it's not easy to do. And it's also, honestly, it's, it's not something that, it's really not really nice to do to a, to a contributor, especially a first time contributor to your project, because they, you know, they went out of their way to actually make a good change. And then you're sort of, you're like giving them more work to do, um, and making it harder for, mm-hmm. for that change to get in. So it's just like an extra barrier that, um, you're, you're putting up. So anyway, the the idea was let's, let's just leave, throw in a linter here that can catch these issues that people, you know, so that at least the people are running NPM tests to make sure that they're their code changes are actually working, the test suite, then at least they'll, they'll catch the issues before they send in a pull request. And so I added an ESLint uh, configuration, which is something I'm sure a lot of people have done. It's not a, I mean, it's a, you know, that's a common sense way to solve this problem. But there, the, the issue was that there are dozens of WebTorrent repos. And that's, that causes uh, basically the ESLint files to have to be copied into 10 or 20 different repositories. And then um, uh, as like new ESLint rules come out that I want to add, to the configuration, I have to then add that that new rule to to all twenty configurations, right? And so keeping the ESLint files in sync uh, is just became like a burden. And so there was an easy solution to this, which was to just take the ESLint file and put it into a package, uh, an npm package, that all of the different projects could just uh, depend upon. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of how how the idea for standard came about. It was like let's just put the Config in one place, and then it'll be easy to keep it updated. Uh, but then, to make it easier to use, rather than having everybody, every project depend on ESLint, and everyone, you know, every project would then have a different ESLint version. I also put ESLint into the package and exposed a single command that you could just run that would run ESLint with that config. And so, when it came time to pick a name for it, I, I was gonna call it WebTorrent Style or Faros Style or something like that, or you know, for WebTorrent Linter. Because it was just supposed to be for the WebTorrent project, but um, I had just written a package that lets you search the um, search search NPM for available names using a dictionary, and so I, I just ran that and it it came up with a bunch of possible you know, dictionary words that I could use for the package, and one of them was standard. And uh, another one was policy, I think, that I was considering. And I was just like, oh, man, this would be so good. If I, if I pick policy, you know, then it's kind of like, okay, so this is a policy that you can enforce on your code. But standard has this other connotation of it being a standard, which I thought was really funny, uh, since a lot of the s- style decisions are purely my preference. <laughs> so, yeah, I just picked that name thinking it would be a kind of a little funny joke, but you know, some people felt strongly about it and there was some debates on Twitter and uh, some, some exchanges. <laughs> I love how the dare, internet. <laughs> how dare, how dare you call this a standard? Who are you? Are you part of the ECMA standards body? Are you on TC 39? Wh- where's the standards organization? <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and
1: so uh, yeah. If, if
0: you're one of the people that had a problem with that, I'm sorry for laughing, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, it's, I, I took, I take the point. I mean, the, there is a, yeah Chance chance people would be confused and think that it's a real standard but we try to be clear in the readme about uh about it and and uh you know there's no like intentional misleading it's just more of a i mean it's more of a joke uh that the name is called standard but uh but to be fair though like one of the uh, one of the like unintentional benefits of standard was so i mean i made it so that i wouldn't have to repeat the yes configs across projects but this unintentional benefit was that uh People started saying, "Well, you know what? Actually, there is there is a benefit to me just um, writing code the same way as uh, this standard tool wants me to. Then I don't have to convince my team to adopt ESLint, and we don't have to debate every point, and we don't have to have style disagreements about are we going to all decide to to use double quotes or single quotes for our strings? Right? Like it doesn't really matter as long as you're consistent. Consistency is the most important thing. And so uh, there's sort of it's sort of nice now when you when you go to a a project on GitHub and you see that the project uses standard, then you know exactly what code you need to write and what to expect. Um, and um, yeah, it's just makes things uniform in, in, in a nice way. So yeah. that was an unexpected benefit. Very cool. So what are you working on now? Well, I made a website recently just for fun that uh, might be cool to talk about. Um, it's called Play. It's a music site. Um, it's, you can visit it, the URL is play.cash, <laughs> C-A-S-H, uh, so play.cache. Uh, and it's a way to uh, listen to music and watch the music videos that go with the songs. So it has a really quick search uh, that lets you quickly get to the song you're looking for, and um, it uses YouTube to actually play the videos. Um, but what's really cool about it is um, it has uh, integration with this service called Song Facts. So if the song that you're listening to has um, associated uh, facts in this uh, song facts database, then those facts will show up while you watch the video. So in the form of little bubbles that will appear on top of the video, like sort of like um, VH1 pop up video, uh, which is a which is a really cool um Little TV program on on the VH1 channel in the in the early two thousands that basically showed show you little bubbles of 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 like behind the scenes information about how the song was made, um, you know what what the um, artist might have, have have meant with the song, the so meanings of the lyrics, um, and and also really just really interesting info about uh, like who. Uh, who wrote the song, or how the, how the, how the collaboration happened to make certain songs? Um, just just sort of everything that a music lover would really want to know about about um, different songs. I find it really interesting to go through and just like look at the different uh, facts uh, for for uh, my favorite uh, bands. Um, so it was it was mostly an experiment for me to learn about um, preact. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to try that out. Um, are you familiar with, uh, with preact?
0: I've heard of it, but I haven't actually looked into it.
1: Yeah, so it's basically a, uh API, compa- it's API compatible with, 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 with uh, React, which means that um, your code, your, your React components and everything should just work if you switch from React to Preact or back, uh, back to React. So, um, it's, uh, so why would you use Preact? Well, it's, it's a, about the t- a tenth uh, the size of uh, React. So React is around 30 kilobytes, I believe, and Preact is 3 kilobytes. Um, which is pretty nice if you're trying to make a site that works well on, on mobile. Um, and so um, it was mainly a, a way for me to I wanted to experiment with how 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 small can I make this this JavaScript bundle um, how, how efficiently can I um, you know make a, a full featured site with with um, all you know lots of fanciness um, but all while keeping the JavaScript bundle really small, so I was able to basically keep keep the bundle at twenty five kilobytes. Um, so I was I don't know I just I thought that was an interest was an interesting experiment I wanted to try um, and and it's so I, I think it's pretty incredible that uh, an entire site can be uh, you know uh, built with less kilobytes than you know just including React would add to your application. Uh, so it's uh, it's definitely possible to build. Applications that don't have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilobytes of, of JavaScript. Uh, and that's that's something that actually pe- a lot of people <laughs> have forgotten, in my opinion. Um, you, you know, you go to, like, a news site, and you'll get, like, megs of JavaScript, you know, just to show text. Yeah. So, yeah, it's sort of like unbelievable in some ways but uh yeah, i don't know i think it's a fun little app i spent about a couple months building it and um i don't i don't know if i'm going to keep working on it i'm thinking i'm thinking that it, that i'm probably going to try and move on to another project now but uh, i'm glad i was able to build that um it's uh it's a fun little site so check it out
0: sounds like fun mm-hmm. all right well the last section of this show is pics Have you ever felt like you're falling behind or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in JavaScript. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got JavaScript Jabber all day? Well, you can, kind of. We've created a Slack community for JavaScript Jabber. That means that you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at javascriptjabber.com slash slack. Do you have some things you want to shout out about on the show?
1: Yeah, uh, I'll shout out the decentralized web. So there's a whole bunch of different teams trying to work on making the uh, web a less... uh, well, actually, let me, let me phrase that positively, a more free place and a more um, open place and a, a place where you know uh, our online experiences aren't controlled by a handful of super powerful corporations. Um, so I want to just shout out a whole bunch of those efforts. Uh, and if you're interested in this at all, you should just go to, go to your browser right now and open a tab for each one of these. So check out the DAT project, the Beaker project, the IPFS project, uh, Secure Scuttlebutt, patchwork and brave (laughs) cool all who all are doing really cool things
0: nice can i get links to those in the skype chat so i can put them in the show notes
1: sure thing yeah i'll do that
0: all right well in the vein of what you're picking i'm gonna uh, pick a few things i don't know if these help decentralize things but i like them one of them is let's encrypt Um, nice I, just, I use them for all of my certificates. It's funny because I actually have a wildcard cert that probably has like three years left on it on uh, devchat.tv. And I just switched over to Let's Encrypt because it was easier.
1: Yeah, I just switched over all my stuff as well. Um, it's, the only hard part about Let's Encrypt is that cron job you need to set up to keep the certificates up to date. Yeah. But yeah. How did you find that? that? Was that hard to figure out?
0: I basically just copied and pasted whatever it was on um, the article that I used. I think it was on digital ocean uh-huh. and uh, they're like, yeah, just put this in your cron tab. Okay. <laughs> you know, I kind of looked at it to make sure it wasn't scary, but I kind of trust those guys anyway. And mm-hmm. uh, then I was like, you know, I was, it was mostly checking it just cause I used to be a systems administrator and I just don't put stuff on my server. <laughs> but uh, yeah i was I was pretty happy with that. It was really relatively simple to get set up. I did mess it up a few times and had to wait the you know the cool down period' it was an hour or something I don't remember but yeah, so I really like that and uh yeah, for hosting, I use um Digitalocean like I mentioned, and uh they're pretty awesome i I really like their interface and things just work out really well that way so mm-hmm.
1: yeah i found I found let's encrypt's documentation was Mostly good, but um, I think I ran into some issues when I was setting it up where my version of Ubuntu had an older version of the Let's Encrypt
0: uh-huh.
1: CL- CLI, so I had to do some extra Googling to figure out how to accomplish. I can't remember what it was, but but um, but after I had it set up, yeah, it's pretty awesome. I mean, you run one command and you have a cert, so yeah, it's yep. a great service. I love I love it.
0: Well, and it's a cert that the browsers will accept, you know, as opposed to like the self-signed certs, so... Yep. All right. Well, if people want to check on what you're doing now, uh, see what's going on maybe with WebTorrent or something else, where should they go?
1: Uh, Well, you can find the WebTorrent Twitter account. It's WebTorrent app. And you can also just follow me if you want. I'm Feroz on Twitter. All right. F e r F e r o s s.
0: Yep. All right, Feroz. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you for coming. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And we will be back next week with another story. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot to learn more.